0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Deep in History. This is uh, your co-host, Marcus Grode. I joined with Monsignor Jeffrey Steen- Steenson. Uh, good morning, mm. Monsignor Steenson.
1: Uh, good good day to you, mate.
0: <laughs> to, <laughs> thank you for joining us. We're picking up on uh, our study of against heresies, and uh, for, we're going to entitle today's episode A Better Knowledge. We're getting that from... A statement that Man, that uh, Irenaeus makes on page two twelve of uh, Against Heresies, Keeble's translation, and it seemed like a good way to pull together. We, we're going to go review a number of quotes as we progress through Book Three today, um, and. In some way, that statement, which says, now ignorance, the mother of all these is done away with by better knowledge. That's the statement that we're kind of basing our study on today. Because in a way that Monsignor, doesn't that kind of bring together his whole task, if you will, of why he's writing this book? It is.
1: Um, and it's kinda, it's kind of, that statement is a real stinger too, because remember we've got these Gnostics that go around saying they've got a, a better knowledge, a secret true knowledge, and um, so Irenaeus is fighting them um, with their own weapons here, if you will. So,
0: yeah, and as I was thinking about this section we're going to look at, it reminded me of that uh, parable of our Lord's in Matthew 13 about the parable of the sower. And we've heard that uh, all of us, all of our lives, um, and we hear about the the th- four different soils, if you will, that the word of God is planted in, and then mm. in the first three don't remain productive. Which, in a way, uh, as he just, as our Lord explains in Matthew 13, you know that some hear the word, then it falls away quickly, or they get tempted by uh, the devil, or the voices in culture, or they get busy with things, and so the Word doesn't uh, take root. Uh, And then the fourth one, it does, and produces fruit. But the distinction is really the issue of understanding the Word of God, because all four soils, the Scriptures say, people hear the word. Mm-hmm. They hear it. But the difference between the fourth soil and the first three is that they not only heard it, they understood. They understood. And so, if you will, that to me, that's a backdrop to, in a way, the whole book that we're looking at, but specifically this section because we have these people with all these different ideas on what the gospel is and they're spinning their, their different philosophical ways of understanding Christ and explaining it, and it's pulling people away. So it's up to this point, Irenaeus has been dealing with, on the one hand, explaining these false gospels. and But he, his goal in book three is to say, okay, I've explained who they are and what they've said and what's wrong with what they've said, now based on the scriptures, we want to give you a better knowledge. You want to fill the void of your ignorance and with all the false knowledge coming in that you're hearing to make sure you get a better gnosis, better knowledge, a more accurate and trustworthy knowledge. That's right. And and then what,
1: what lies ahead of us is um, he takes uh, the four Gospels initially, he takes the four Gospels and he contrasts the Gnostic interpretation of those Gospels with um, the true interpretation, if you will. Um, So he's got we're we're seeing a definite theological methodology that he's up to
0: here. For me, personally the reason this book I find fascinating is because it it applies to today in so many ways, and it wasn't as true in his day when he wrote as it is today, where our lives are so infiltrated with other Gospels. And, as I think we mentioned last week, there are Bible teachers, very recognized Bible teachers, readily available on the internet and in publishing that have a different hermeneutic to explain the Gospels, explain them away. And if you start at Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and you have a a skewed hermeneutic, you can can take every verse and end up in a different direction.
1: That's right. That's right. And you know, they... They all. I mean, what I always was so struck by was, you know, at the end of the day, when you take that critical approach to scripture, the idea that Jesus is the Son of God, that doesn't appear until the second century. Basically, if they're yeah. they're saying yeah. he's a, he's a great teacher um, in the first century. Yeah, one of those. In the second century, he's transformed into something else.
0: Yeah, and one of those very popular writers basically says that uh, when quote orthodoxy was established in the fourth century at the council of of uh, Nicaea, then it not only did they establish the the grid within which you had you were called to now understand Christ, but they then selected which books y- you could read. So this particular, author that i'm talking about become very influential is also saying well look at all the other gospels that were written at that time why were they rejected so he's bringing the, the whole can of worms gets opened up to leads nothing but confusion and i've not read his stuff all of it but i almost wonder if he's would would garg, argue that Irenaeus is one of those problem makers that uh was trying to impose his orthodoxy on people at the expense of all these other fine writers. And I, I I would think he would be saying, well, wait a second, we need to listen to Valentinius and Marcion. And it yeah. just opened the can of worms all over again to, to undercut everything that the Holy Spirit was trying to do in the early church to cut through the false knowledge so that they could have a better knowledge. And that's what we see in, in Irenaeus. <laughs> now, we're. We're going to begin at on page two twelve. We're looking at uh, section three of book five, and but again, Monsignor, maybe before we jump into that, refer back to a quote that I think we discussed last week in section two, and it 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 gets with this issue, for the apostles who were sent to find the airing, and for the sight of those who saw not, and for the healing of the sick, did of course speak to them not according to their momentary notion, but as the manifestation of the truth, but as the manifestation of the truth required. And the the reason I I wanted us to go back to that quote before we jumped in today is that the danger and, and Mark Marcus,
1: just point to us again where that is. That quote is
0: that's there. in the bottom of page two eleven.
1: Okay, very good.
0: It's about line five right. into section two. Right. And uh-huh. the reason you I pulled that quote out is because often the hermeneutic of, of people when they're interpreting scripture is not in the direction of what is true and then how it applies to our life but to have it backwards. Let's look at our lives and then use our lives as the hermeneutic of interpreting Scripture.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's all over the place. It's on TV everywhere yeah. today.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: And, and that's what Irenaeus is saying. That's not what the apostles did. They were sent to, to heal, to bring sight, to all of that. Um, but not according to their momentary notion... But as the manifestation of the truth required, truth is first, and then that truth impinges on our life, and we see how it affects our life, and then maybe sheds light on the darkness that's in our life, and then we are to respond by grace to that, not the other way around. Yeah, and
1: he was—he was. Irenaeus he um, was was speaking to the Gnostic criticism that the that the new testament writers the apostles would um they'd they'd tailor the message to whatever they thought the people wanted to hear at the time and so they gave them a an overly simple view of god because that's what they could take um but then for the those that were in the inner circle they got the real mccoy and uh, it's a really great point you bring up there i think Wonderful way to to explain what a a momentary notion is. Yeah.
0: Um, And then he goes on there at the end of section two with the quote that we began with, now ignorance, the mother of all these, is done away with by better knowledge. The Lord, therefore, provided knowledge for his disciples, whereby he both cured the sick and restrained the sinners from their sin. He did not then speak unto them at that time, according to their former way of thinking, nor did he answer inquirers according to their prejudices, but as sound doctrine required both unfeignedly and impartially. so again, it's this issue of truth and uh, and and truth doesn't become malleable depending on our our yeah. uh, our leanings or our preferences or our gut feelings. Truth is truth. And he provided, our Lord provided this knowledge for his disciples. I think about modern medical ethics that, um, uh, what what was it called, Monsignor, the fundamental option idea in modern medical ethics? If I'm... Uh, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, I, in other words, okay. there's there's an underlying truth that never changes, but 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 um, um, what's the what's the phrase for um, um, ethics that changes with the moment? Um, I forget that term. That uh, in my old age, you know, I'm forgetting the term. But it's an ethic that became very popular. In other words, there's no a right. It, it Is it the old situational situation ethics? Situation yeah. ethics. Yeah. They change with the needs. Mm-hmm. So we take something like abortion. Well, pretty soon we're looking at different ways and, and situations that might open the door for an abortion or for contraception or for divorce. And uh, today we've got situation ethics that's changed the whole morality of our culture changed the family everything has has modified based on the voices in our culture you know the more voices screaming for one thing well pretty soon man you know i don't feel like fighting that battle anymore so we give in and pretty soon it, it changes
1: well and look at how even, even in the church today we've got this incredible division going on where You you have the the Catholic Church in Germany saying, "Well, for us, um, these are the things that that we need to say about um, sexuality or whatever. Pick your topic, you know." And we understand that it's different for you folks down there in Africa or in um, in some other part of the world. Saint Irenaeus, we've already dealt with that passage where he said we can't do that. The faith. Is the same everywhere, yeah. In the tr- in the Catholic Church,
0: yeah, yeah. The, huh. and that's why we we you know, it, it, in in Aranaeus time, it was when when a novel idea would pop up. The question is, does that novel idea match what we received from an apostle? Yeah. And a little a couple pages before, we dealt with the, the barbarians who were really basics in the faith. They had received the old tradition apostolic, and that's what they're holding to. And these new ideas, they're saying, time out here. That's not what we received. Well, that's the key. And, and so Irenaeus would say, for those people that can't read Scripture, the church has provided a, 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 a canon. In other words, the creed. Here you go. Here's here's the basics of it. You know, um, I was just thinking,
1: if we're looking for another uh, theme song ever for our podcast, how about give me that old time religion? (laughs) (laughs) It It was was good. It was good for Matthew.
0: (laughs) Exactly. It was good for. I mean, it's really actually I've I've noted that before that that gospel song. you know, I remember I was, I was listening to the movie um, Sergeant York, and they sing that in that movie. You know, it's, it, but it really talks this idea of holding on to that which we receive with all these other voices around us. Well, how do yeah. we know with, with that what we received was true? What if what we had received didn't match the Absalom tradition? What if we had been brought up? and taught by one of these Gnostics. How do we know, how do you break through that to, to find out what's true? Well, Irenaeus would say, it's a deposit that was received and passed on from Christ to his apostles in tradition and scripture. That's the line, the, the better knowledge. He uses that phrase there in section two. But with that, it's kind of an introduction. Let's move into section three, okay. um, in which... Keeble um, gives a title for this section as the actual teaching of our Lord and his apostles. And, Monsignor, let me go ahead and read this long paragraph, and then I'll pass it on to you for some reflection. There's um, some—here's what Irenaeus says. He says, and this is proved no less from our Lord's discourses, who on the one hand to those of the circumcision used to demonstrate the Son of God him whom the prophets had preached, even Christ. In other words, he manifested himself as the restorer of liberty to men and the giver of the inheritance of incorruption. On the other hand, the apostles used to teach the Gentiles that they should leave the vain stocks and stones which they imagined to be gods and worship the true God who established and made all mankind and continued by his creatures to nourish and increase them, and strengthen them and give them being. And wait for his Son, Jesus Christ, who redeemed us from apostasy by his own blood, to the end that we too might be a people made holy, who shall descend from heaven in the power of the Father, both to execute judgment on all, and to bestow on such as shall have kept his commandments the good things which are of God." He, appearing in the last times, even the chief cornerstone, gathered into one and united those who are far off and those who are nigh, in other words, the circumcision and the uncircumcision, enlarging Japheth and setting him in the house of Shem. Now, that's a long quote, Monsignor, but it seems to portray the idea that our Lord Was speaking to a a unique audience with a unique history that he had to address in the way he communicated the gospel. And then, on the other hand, the apostles were addressing a different group of people with different baggage. So the gospel, in a way, was portrayed and communicated differently to these different groups. With the goal, as he says, to bring them together, the circumcised and the uncircumcising, Un- uncircumcised. Is that what you see,
1: Ernie? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Because um, I suppose what the you know the Gnostics couldn't survive without claiming some uh, um, affinity with the apostles and the New Testament church. Because you know they wanted to portray themselves as real Christians. so their their goal was to show how the Old Testament and the New Testament spoke to two different gods, one that God of this world, and then the the New Testament, the higher God. Um, and uh, it's really you can see the basic outlines of Marcionism here in this in this paragraph. and it's just beautiful how. Irenaeus shows how um, the apostles, in their ministry, work to unite these two groups: those of the circumcision and those of uh, who were the Gentiles, Hellenists, um, because there's one God that that unites all of His creation.
0: The I, I wanted to also point out His appearing. He, Irenaeus points out, our Lord appearing in the last times. Mm-hmm. That connects, if you will, it, it, it provides the explanation to the fulfillment of all the Old Testament looking forward and to what the epistles authors will say, Peter will say, Paul will say, James will say, affirming that and Hebrews, this is the last time.
1: We're this is in last time, yeah, and Irenaeus believes that very vividly.
0: We're in those last times. Now, one might look in the Old Testament and see uh, a periodic. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, where where the, the people of God would have chances to start over and over again. They had a chance to start over again after the flood with Noah. And they had a chance to start over again after Babel. And they had a chance to start over again after Sodom and Gomorrah with Abraham. They had a chance to start over again with Moses. They had a chance to start over again with David. So these times where the people were given chances to start over again, and then because of sin, they would fall. and They'd get to the point where God would say, I've had enough with these people. You know, we every day in Psalm 95, we talk about Meribah and uh, Massa and Meribah, right, where God says, you know, I've had it with these folk. They shouldn't. But then we see the mercy of God's steadfast love. He gives them a chance to start over again. So with new leaders, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and Joshua, and Samuel, and Saul, and David, and Solomon, and these chances to start over. But they kept failing. Well, in the church, what we find is that this is the last chance, folks. There isn't going to be another chance. We're in the last days. And we're given grace. We're given a new opportunity in Jesus Christ. The world is redeemed We're given an opportunity to abide in him, and now, how will Mm -hmm. we do it? And that's kind of where our Lord then passes the baton to the apostles, I've given you everything, all right, do it, but abide. Because if you don't abide, you'll be thrown out like the branches. Will you abide? And so we have this opportunity, and we're living in that time right now.
1: That's right. you know I was thinking um, not to you know we're not exactly synced up with the liturgical calendar but the mm-hmm. the lesson the gospel for the 23rd Sunday after an ordinary time um, Jesus spoke about how we bring people back you know one person then two or three and then bring the church into it yeah. and if they still won't hear um, You send them away you excommunicate them basically and i always thought what you just said about um those second chances in the old testament when god says i have had it with you isn't it just almost reminded me of that gospel um basically the goal is not to punish them at this point but to give them this strong medicine to bring them home but as you say there comes a point when that's it
0: yeah and In essence, I'm reminded of that parable where, where the, the, uh, the king or, or owner of the vineyard establishes the vineyard, has people working the vineyard, and then goes away. And then he sends back people to, to, uh, to find out what's going on. And the people who are now the vineyard kept killing all the people that the yeah. that the, the ruler or king, the owner, would send back. And finally, the, he says, well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll send my son. Surely they'll respect him. Yeah. Well, of course, that's salvation history. Yeah. With the killing of all the prophets, many times they had chances to start over and start over. Well, now this is it. He sent the son. Of course, we know the rest of the story. They killed the son. But they but it's in a resurrection, and then there's this chance. The reason I think this, another place where our Lord is implying that this is the last chance is in that wonderful um, statement at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, it's a narrow gate. Mm -hmm. It's a narrow gate, not a wide gate. And only a few get through the narrow gate. This is it. And so in the last times, He's, he talks about Irenaeus talks about in these last times the unity gathered into one the chief cornerstone gathered into one and united those who are far off who couldn't even speak to one another before they brought together the circumcision right. and the uncircumcision and then he uses the imagery from Noah who has three sons right mm-hmm. the one son yep. was bad that led to Ham and that, but the other two sons, and this is a fulfillment of that prophecy, that if you go back to Genesis um, chapter 9, 27, the enlarging of Japheth and the setting him in the house of Shem, Irenaeus sees that what's happening in the church is the fulfillment of the prophecy that was there in the blessing of Japheth and Shem. All right. Well, there's so much we can't go through every little thing in, in book three but we're going to jump around now and just pull a couple things okay um if we jump down to the bottom of page 213 there in we're in chapter 6 1 this, mm-hmm. again there's so much here but they're at the bottom paragraph where he says and again god stood in the congregation of gods in the midst he judged among gods he speaketh of the father and the son and of those who have received adoption now these are the church for this is the congregation of god which god in other words the son did by himself gather together now the reason i i had highlighted that is You know, as Irenaeus gives his argument, sometimes he'll say things that he just takes for granted, that when we look back, they're an affirmation of truths that we don't always take for granted today. And that's why I wanted to point out that to Irenaeus, the church, the church, are those who have received adoption. In other words, he equates those. The adoption that we receive through the Holy Spirit in Christ, we become a part of the church. For this is the congregation of God, which God the Son did by himself gather together. That emphasizes the assumption of Irenaeus that the church was established by God. It's not something that man did. God did this through our adoption as sons. So the initiative for the church is the Son of God.
1: And you know, um, the language he uses about those that are the adopted ones, um, in the midst he judgeth among gods. Uh, what, how do you interpret that? Is, is that a kind of a language of divinization? Or is he sp- is he simply speaking of the, the work of the Blessed Trinity in that
0: in that sentence? Do you think? I'm not sure. Well, the um, we're going to get to a little bit where uh-huh. Irenaeus struggles with the word gods, capital G, little g. Yeah. And in this paragraph, he's got Kebel, our English publication of it has Keeble capitalizing God stood in the congregation of gods and in the midst he judges among gods and this is of course a translation of Psalm 32 1 and my interpretation has always been that when he uses the word gods he's referring to the false gods Mm -hmm. that the surrounding nations lift up as their pagan gods. And yet we have one God, the true God, that it's an imagery, it's not a real portrayal of God standing in the midst of these phony gods. They don't really exist. But our God stands over and above all these other false ideas, the gods.
1: That's the way I I interpret it. Yeah, okay. I see what you're saying there, yeah. Yeah, uh, that's, where, that's worth reflecting on some more. I, I
0: agree. Well, again, it goes on, concerning whom yeah. again he saith, the God of gods, the Lord hath spoken and called the world. Well, what God? He of whom has said God will come. Evidently, even our God, and will not keep silence. In other words, the Son, who is his manifestation among him. So, again, he's... I mean, it's hard, I think it's hard to imagine ourselves in the environment that those Gnostics had portrayed with all these different gods. Yeah. And that's the backdrop to all this, that Irenaeus is trying to cut through and say, there is one God, one God, and we're gonna get to that in a moment. Look,
1: uh, look at that um, on the, at the top of page 214 then. Um, those to whom, third line down, those to whom he saith, I said, ye are gods, and all the children of the Most High, to these, namely, who have won the grace of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba,
0: Father. Yeah, now in that sense, yeah. that seems to be playing to the divinization issue, doesn't it? Ye are gods.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating.
0: Yeah, we just read in one of the Office of Readings recently, there was a, uh, one of the authors was talking about this, this divinization that we receive, which is so much more popular in the Eastern Church than in the Western Church. But on the other hand, he's, he's using quotes from the Psalms mm-hmm. that I don't think would have been understood in terms of God standing in the midst of his people who have been adopted and divinized. I don't think that's where those Psalms talked about, is God standing in the midst of all these phony gods. Yeah. But on the other hand, it does seem like in. in well,
1: he goes. Good. I'm sorry. Oh, oh and, you know, and when we get into section two, he kind of gives us a little help through this. Um, uh, no one, therefore, besides, as I said before, is named God. Or entitled Lord except him who is God and Lord of all. So um, he's sort of we, we, he says that scripture will use the term God of people other than the Most High. But only the Most High only the only God that has title Lord as well is the Most
0: High. So yeah, if you jump down to the yeah. section three, but when Scripture names those who are not gods, it does not, yeah. as I said before, signify that they are altogether gods, but with some addition, an indication whereby they are shown not to be gods. As in David, the gods of the heathen are images of demons. You know, it, what fascinates me about this also is that we today there are if i if i will pseudo christian sex that talk about us becoming gods and the one that comes to mind of course is are the mormons that that's what we become when when you're a good I'm I, I'm passing on what I've been told about the Mormon Church. I've never been directly involved with it, what I've read, but the idea that that's what our goal is, is to become gods, and when we die, we'll become a god of our own planet. And if you will, they're, they're I'm assuming basing this on the early church's understanding of divinization You know, that we become sons of God through adoption. And so, once again, what this emphasizes is our need for better knowledge. Because unless we have trustworthy, better knowledge, we can be easily pulled off center into close-but-no-cigar theologies. You know, another example comes to my mind are the Jehovah Witnesses that, again, I think they believe that when we die, there are the 144,000 that will spend eternity with God and everybody else will be down here on earth. Well, that's actually kind of close to the Catholic understanding of heaven and purgatory. You know, those that die that don't quite are not holy and pure enough to enter into God's presence or go, go through a time of purgation. And that takes a long time. Yeah. For you, my it's only gonna take a day. For me, it'll be many, many centuries. Uh so I'll be down here with all so. the, the Jehovah Witness folk on earth, and you'll be up there with hundred and forty four thousand. You can't do this. You're you're keeping coals of fire in my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm poking fun at the idea that 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 a lot of these theologies are very close to the theologies of the early church, when the Gnostics were taking it here, the pagans were taking it over here, and really close taking scriptures to put it over here, and now we have modern day folk taking it you know, running with it, coming up with their own Bibles. And Irenaeus says, this better knowledge has to be trustworthy.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. We, of course, you know, you had some of these Gnostic figures that were running around proclaiming that they were gods, Simon, and, mm-hmm. uh, certainly Simon Magus did. Um, eventually we're going to meet up within a few years, um, Montanus, who um, proclaimed that he was um, an incarnation of the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, got a lot of crazy stuff. In this but, really but there are good. echoes. We,
0: we, we see that today. Yeah. And when, uh, especially with the Internet, there's a phenomenon happening today in Christianity that did not exist 50 years ago, and that was the start of completely without apology, independent churches that have no direct connection with historic Christianity. They see the Bible as the foundation, but no creed. Uh, They may write their own creed, maybe well-meaning folk. They may have hidden in their bylaws that they're more connected with Methodism or Baptistism or, or Reformed or but totally independent. Now, there were independent churches in the past, but nothing like yeah. today. And they, of course, but
1: it's interesting, they all learn how to read scripture through the eyes of their founders. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's a, always a tradition there. It's just a false tradition.
0: Well, and close. close. Yeah. like I said, the, the 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 Mormon idea of becoming gods is close to what we see, but that's not exactly. So that would you put Irenaeus in that shoes. How do we help someone that's taken this truth about adoption? And that's the church, those that have been adopted through the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's what Irenaeus is saying. And this is what mm-hmm. God did. This is what God did, and this is the church. So then how do you... It, it's like trying to squeeze a water balloon. That you train, every, It'll pop out over here. No, then it'll pop out over here or it'll pop out over here, right? I mean, it's just all over the place. That's how do you hold this together? That's and, a brilliant, brilliant metaphor. Well, But that's what's happened throughout history. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, if we go to section four, we see Irenaeus praying. He, he pauses in the midst of the discussion with a prayer. Yeah. Well, see, why you not you go ahead and read that prayer and talk about it right in
1: the midst of it it's, yes i mean he, he 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 um is a very fierce argue arguer you know he he's he's delivered some hammer blows to them but he never loses sight of the goal which is to bring these people back um i and i therefore call on the o god of abraham and god of isaac and god of jacob and israel who art the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, O God, who by the multitude of thy mercy has been well pleased in us, that we may know thee, who hast made heaven and earth, who art Lord of all, who art the only and true God, over whom there is no other God, by our Lord Jesus Christ, do thou bestow also the command of the Holy Spirit. So that's the faith, and here he prays, Grant to everyone who reads this writing to acknowledge thee that thou art the only God and to be strengthened in thee and to withdraw from all heresy, all godless, all impious opinions. So it's a pastor's heart there. It's a controversialist, you know, in terms of how he writes, but there's a deep pastor's heart there to bring these people back to the truth. Because remember, we talked last week. They started as Christians. They started in apostolic communities, and they wandered away.
0: In this brief summary of, you know, Irenaeus pauses for a second in the midst of this and, and, and offers this prayer. I therefore call on the Lord God. He he, he pauses for a moment because his pastoral goal, as you said, is for the readers of this book to know the one God. One. One God. God. Not all these other things. One God. One God. And he has no problem by talking about our Lord Jesus He's not caught up in the in the Trinitarian argument, you know. Yet there's an assumption of this is what he's received in the apostolic tradition. He's not seeing two gods. He's seeing God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the way he's described in Scripture. We also know that the word Lord in the old, all through the Old Testament witness is an is an address of God. So it isn't an, an acceptance of Christ as a son of God. But the, the point is one God. And the other thing I want to point out in here in this short summary is there's a part of it that, again, we t- can take for granted today, but the foundational understanding of God and why we recognize his authority over us is because he is our creator. That's the the beginning point. Yes. We, We talk about him as father, as he says here, who art the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize him as father. But the foundational assumption is creator. Yes. We
1: didn't find him. He, he found us because he created us and he owns us. Yeah. I mean, you know, we are his property. We are his creation.
0: And Irenaeus talks about that all the way through. And we li- if we live in a time period in which people do not recognize God as creator then the foundation for our understanding have a, a, a true knowledge of God is uh, impotent from the beginning if we don't recognize what it means that he is creator of all. And, you know, that's why he'll constantly from beginning to end emphasize that. But there's so much we can go through line by line, but we're, we're trying to jump around. Monsignor, you had particularly emphasize in our preparation that you wanted to address chapter 7 on page yes. 216.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, on page 216 and 17. Um, just, I just wanted to note um, simply that we've got a very interesting argument that goes on here about um, how to interpret uh, that passage that that he quotes at the beginning of chapter seven, on page 216, um, from, uh, two sixteen, from Second Corinthians four four, um, the God of this world blinds the minds of the unbelieving, um, and the the Gnostics misinterpreted it um, by arguing that the God of this world refers to this God the darkness the the god of the old testament and that he's the one that that sowed all this confusion and now we have finally uh breaking through from the outer parts we have the true god who has come and, and give us light so he's he's arguing that um the gnostics have misinterpreted 2 corinthians 4 4 what I found so interesting about this I I just was reflecting on it a little bit Um, Irenaeus says um, uh, what 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 we should be aiming at um, how we'd interpret this um, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of the unbelieving and firm that the God of this world is one and he another who is over all principality and beginning and power that's what they were saying. It's not our fault if those who say they know the mysteries that are higher than God have not so much the skill as to read Paul. And then he goes on to have this little argument about Paul's custom of using uh, transpositions, um, or uh, I guess the Greek for that is Um And this is for people that... Um, like to play around with new testament greek a little bit um of this world um when he uses of this world um it's a genitive and where where does that genitive relate to um does it relate to god or does it relate to the unbelieving of this world and and he argues that um Like those of us that, you know, are very much um, at the beginning level of New Testament Greek or Latin, some of these highly inflected languages, sometimes those genitives and the sentences appear in places where they wouldn't appear in English. And I thought that was interesting because he was saying, basically, we just have to learn how to understand Paul the grammarian here (laughs) and how he will move things around a little bit. Um, and so, you know what he's trying to say is that God has blinded the minds of the unbelieving of this world on top of page two seventeen. So there the, the people that have done some uh, New Testament Greek um, um and have been in you know New Testament interpretation classes will immediately recognize. This is the sort of thing that yeah. public school scholars love to get lost in. How now, do you do that?
0: Now, I might be stepping in some stuff that I step in um, <laughs> out on my cow pasture, but in in this case, I think Erynatis got it wrong.
1: Yes, and modern. Modern critis- critical um, scholarship of Irenaeus here says he got it wrong as well. I, I the the best um, modern commentary, uh, modern translation of Against Heresies is from the Ancient uh, Christian Writers series, and there uh, the editor points out that um, that there's only one place that you can take that genitive um, of the world. It's got to apply it to God, not to the other. And so, um, he, basically, the argument is that Irenaeus probably got it wrong on this point. Yeah, it, In terms of his...
0: Well, the to me, the difference where you can see it is that if you're looking at Keeble, mm-hmm. every time the word God is in this paragraph, it's capitalized, which therefore implies that It's the one God. And so if you have it as the God of this world capitalized, how do you interpret that? And so the Gnostics were therefore taking that to mean the Old Testament God of this world in a negative sense. And Irenaeus didn't want to go there. But Irenaeus didn't seem to be able to let go of the word theos to mean God, the creator. So he had to take that phrase and move it somewhere else.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: And so he moved it to refer to the people, which he said, therefore, he thinks it should read, God hath blinded the minds of the unbelieving of this world. And then he'll say at the end of that paragraph, but how God blinded the minds of them which believe not, we will show from Paul himself in the progress of our discourse. So what you see is is in his apologetic, trying to argue against the Gnostics' uh, misinterpretation of the God of this world to mean the bad God of the Old Testament. So in Nares' apologetic, he moves that phrase over, but now he's stuck with another theology that he has to deal with, which is how is it that God— blinds the unbeliever. Yeah. And now we're into the the awkward place of predestination, double predestination, so that if a person over there doesn't believe, well, it's because God blinded them. It isn't their fault. It's God blinding them. And now we're into the whole yeah. controversies that will come later about the freedom of the will, uh which affects even missionary, you know, in some Protestant groups that were so caught up into, it's God that blinded peoples, so therefore, there's no need for us to go out and try to evangelize them. If God wants to convert them, he'll do it. It's up, you know, it's the extreme of that, which he kind of moves into because of the way that he can't let that word God mean anything other than God, the creator. However, as you pointed out, the modern translators recognize, well, maybe Irenaeus overstepped it because when you look at the translation of that verse in, for example, the Revised Standard Version, it goes this way, in their case, the God, little g, right. of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, which is the likeness of the God of this world, the devil.
1: And, and it's interesting, Irenaeus, as we go on a little, I can't remember exactly where it is, it's a little farther forward. He basically takes that and he's, he settles on that interpretation. The God of this world is Satan. And, you know, it's Satan who blinds. Yep. God doesn't blind. So he, he's not being completely consistent in how he handles that.
0: We'll we'll get to that. Even as he says that uh, maybe uh, you know when he said he'll get to it later, then in his own study he didn't quite uh, agree with what he had said previously. We didn't get back and correct it yet. So because because book three had already been publicate published and uh,
1: you know that's I was thinking of that this morning um, that that Irenaeus wrote this before there were publishers that assigned editors to authors. Because <laughs> we're having a lot of trouble getting through this because we are basically functioning as editors at this point. So,
0: Well, again, remember in those days they didn't have movable type. <laughs> That's right. So a copy of Irenaeus Book 3 was done by hand. And then once they've been disseminated, they're out there. That's right. So how would he go back and correct something? Uh, that's right. Except yeah. maybe just to say it was corrected in Book Four or Book Five. Augustine had to do the same thing, right? He had to do his retractions.
1: retractions, yeah, that's right. And those are, those are pretty extensive. Those retractions. Yep. So uh,
0: let's let's try and cover one more section, Monsignor, okay. before we uh-huh. we close today. I, I feel like we just skim over everything and probably leave more. Uh, uh, cans of worms undealt with. Uh, but if we jump to page 222. Okay. And now we're in book three, uh, chapter nine, section two. Um, He's dealing with the Gospels and he's in Matthew. Mm hmm. And he's dealing with angels, and he makes this wonderful statement. Um, And it's in the the middle of section 2 on page 222. He says, And Matthew again saith that the wise men coming from the east said, We have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him and that being brought safe by a star into the house of Jacob to Emmanuel, did by the gifts which they offered show who he was, who received their adoration. By the myrrh first, because it was he who should die and be buried for the perishable race of man. Gold again, because he is a king of whose kingdom there is no end. And frankincense because he is God, who was both made known in Judea and displayed unto those who sought him not. Now, Monsignor, what is so significant about this paragraph? Well, we
1: we've had a wonderful talk about this. This is the first time, at least in our text that we have where one of the fathers of the church has given an interpretation of what those Gifts of the Magi signify gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I I was fascinated. I went and did some look, I just kind of followed this up a little bit further. And the next time, the next church father that addresses this and gives the interpretation of of these gifts of the wise men is Origen in his work against Celsus, um, book one, chapter nine. Now that work, comes maybe maybe as much as 20 or 30, 40 or 50 years from um, when Irenaeus wrote his. Mm-hmm. What's so interesting to me is that when Origen was a young man, he went to Rome to visit Hippolytus. We know that Hippolytus was um, deeply um, uh, involved in the writing of Irenaeus at this point. Um, He brings a lot of Irenaeus into his work. So I always wondered, I've wondered, did Origen basically take that imagery, the meaning of the three gifts of the wise men, and bring it to the east with him? And there then this wonderful interpretation that we love so dearly um, uh, entered into um, Christian consciousness fascinating.
0: It is. As you said, this is the first time. We, we take it for yeah. granted. Every time the Epiphany comes along, we know this is going to come. And I remember preaching homilies on, on Epiphany. And what do I say this year, different than last year? Uh, well, this is the, the norm, right? We take it for granted.
1: We three kings of Orient are. Who wrote that hymn? I forget. who
0: wrote that hymn. But that they take that That interpretation. I think that was a New England Protestant that wrote that hymn. I'm quite sure. Um, (laughs) But anyway, it just it's it's given. And if you read what the way Irenaeus says it, he's not he really though isn't expressing as if he's come up with something new. In other words, he's passing it on as if it's something the audience will recognize. As true, so, in other words, we're not saying that Irenaeus is the one that came up with this idea. It's the right. first time it's been written down, but it, it, it again, I believe that Irenaeus, by Irenaeus' words himself, he he sticks as tight to the apostolic deposit of faith as possible, and he says strongly in an earlier chapter, "Where God has spoken, will speak." Where he doesn't speak, we shouldn't speak. Which, in my mind, says that this interpretation of the myrrh and gold and fragrances has a long history already. Yes,
1: yeah, so I think that's fair to say. Uh, I think that's fair to say, and um, you know, you can imagine that he learned it from Polycarp,
0: who learned and it from Polycarp
1: John. Polycarp was trained by John. You know. Yeah. So, so we're so this is the third this is the third generation of the church at this point and
0: yeah you can almost see uh, the apostles sitting around with our resurrected lord one night in the upper room jesus what did those what were those gifts all about and jesus says don't you guys get it yet the myrrh represented this the gold represented this the frankincense represented this oh wow jesus you know i mean I mean, there's the idea of the passed on right from our Lord. Uh,
1: but it is. It, I'm glad you pulled this out. It's a brill, It's just a mar, one of the marvelous little things that we have in book three, this interpretation.
0: Well, when we pick up next week, we're going to jump to um, page 224. Okay. Chapter 10, section 2. We'll begin there, we'll look at that paragraph, which in there talks about the church as well as Our Lady. And then we'll, from there, we'll jump over to uh, page 226 and we'll, we'll be then in uh, section three of book um, chapter ten, but we're going to start where it says, "This, therefore, is the knowledge of salvation, and not another God, nor another Father, nor the deep, nor a pleroma, but the knowledge of salvation." That's what we'll look at, and then we'll go on from there.
1: All right, Monsignor. Okay, if so, you, so it'll be page two twenty-two next time.
0: Uh, we'll start out with.
1: Oh no, I got two twenty-four. 224. 224. 24. Okay, very
0: good. Okay, thank you, Marcus. Could you close us with a a prayer?
1: Okay. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen.
1: We thank you, blessed Lord, for the privilege of being with this third generation of uh, your church and the insights that we've gained from studying St. Irenaeus. We pray that we will bring these things to bear in the challenges of our time, and we pray for the church and for the salvation of the people. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. All right, Monsignor. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me on this episode. And those of you watching I hope and listening, I hope this has been an encouragement to you. And if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear them. Until then, God bless. We'll see you again next week. God bless you.